again, it's good to be with you this morning. So I've lived in this area uh, except for about six years from 2010 to 2016. I've lived in this area since 1995. I went to North Carolina State University and then uh, once I graduated, I actually worked with a crew, the campus ministry, used to be known as Campus Crusade at Duke University. If you're a Duke fan, congrats on last night. Um, I'm not a Duke fan, uh, uh, but congrats to Duke. But when I was there as a campus minister, there was a time I was, I was helping to lead our weekly meeting of students where we'd get together and sing and, and look at God's word together. And I asked the students, there were about 100 of them or so present, I, I asked them to raise their hand if they had no trouble at all sharing with their friends, their family, others that they know that God loves them and wants a relationship with them. And just about every hand went up. And then I asked them, I said, okay, I'm going to ask you a second question. How many of you have a hard time believing that God's love is true for you? And just about every hand went up. About 10 years after that, so this would have been, I don't know, about 2012, uh, I was at the church we were at in Philadelphia at the time. That's where I was when I left here for a few years. And I asked a similar question, and this was a room not just full of college students, it was, it was full of all sorts of ages, and I asked those same two questions, and the response was a lot the same. And I think that's a perennial challenge in the Christian life, is we, we know what Scripture says about God's, uh, God's love for us, we've sung about it this morning, but for many of us, when we lay down our heads at night, we are left with that nagging question, does he really love me? We're aware of our sins, we're aware of our struggles, and we just have that, that nagging question, could this really be true for me? And I believe that living confidently in the love of God is vital for spiritual growth. I think when we really struggle and get stuck on that question, does he really love me? And I don't, I'm not sure he really loves me. Uh, it, can, it can hamper our spiritual growth. In fact, Paul, in the book of Ephesians, uh, right at the end of chapter 3, and it's this really interesting tra uh, transition in the book of Ephesians between the, all these things that God has done for us, chapters 1 through 3, the salvation we have, the forgiveness of our sins, the love he's poured out for us in Christ, and then the second half of the book, verses 4 through 6, where he explains the implications for living out of what God's done for us. He has this prayer at the hinge point between chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6 in Ephesians. And part of the prayer is that you and I would grasp how long, how high, how wide, and how deep is the love of Christ for us. And that by grasping that, we would actually grow into spiritual maturity. It's vital for us. So this morning, I have, I have one main goal for us this morning as we look at uh, primarily Exodus 34, 6 and 7. We'll look at a few other passages too. But, but here's my goal for us this morning, that you and I, would be more convinced when we leave here this morning or when we click off online that he really, really loves us, that we would grow in our confidence of that this morning. You know, there's a, there's a children's song almost all of us know in this room about his love, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's what we want to look at this morning. What does the word of God say about his love for us? 
And we're going to look at two main things. We're going to look at this passage in Exodus 34, and then we're going to look at kind of two places where we struggle to really believe that this is true of us. And that's where we go this morning. So let me just pray for us again for our time in God's word. God, you do love us. And yet it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around how a holy, infinite, eternal God could love us, sinful, broken people. And yet that's what your word says that you do for all those who put their trust in you. God, would you help us this morning to to see this in your word, but more than that, to see the God of love in your word and to grow in our understanding of that and our belief in that and that it really would change our lives and that we would grow spiritually. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we read the passage, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it again here in just a, just a minute, but I want to just set up the context of what's going on in Exodus 34. It's actually a well-known part of the story of God's people in Exodus. It's going to be a, a familiar uh, story to you, but just to recap what's going on, because it really makes these words jump off the page to us. So this is part of the story where Israel, they have left Egypt, so they were enslaved in Egypt. God has called them out. The Passover has happened, the last of the plagues, and they have left Egypt, and they're on their way towards the promised land. And in this section of Exodus, they find themselves camped at Mount Sinai. And while they're at Mount Sinai, Moses has been going up and down the mountain to meet with God and comes back down and says things to his people, and they're there. But they're there for much longer than we would think they, or that they thought they should be there. And... A couple chapters before uh, the incident that we're going to highlight here, Moses is up on the mountain, and the first thing he receives from God is the Ten Commandments. And God is actually graciously telling his people, this is what relationship with me actually looks like. This is how to live. You know, there's some things in the Christian life we, we struggle. Is it right for me to do this? Is it wrong for me to do this? I don't know. I'm seeking wisdom. There are places where that's hard, and we talk to a pastor, an elder, or a trusted friend. But in this instance, God is actually very straightforwardly saying, this is what it looks like to live in relationship with me. And the first thing he says in there is that you should have no other gods before me. But interestingly, as Moses stays up on the mountain, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments he was receiving. God was actually giving him instructions for all sorts of things uh, that Israel would do as they made their way to the promised land. And even once they entered the promised land, how they would worship establishing the priesthood, establishing the tabernacle. God's telling them all these things, and, he, and, and Moses is up there doing this, uh, hearing this, and he's supposed to go back down and relay these things to the people. The people, though, are at the bottom of the mountain, and Exodus 32 tells us that they get very, very impatient waiting for Moses. And we know the story. But I think when we contrast what's happening with Moses up on the mountain and what's going on with the people down at the bottom of the mountain, so, so again, the first commandment, don't have any other gods before me. Interestingly, when God was telling Moses, what are you supposed to do to build this tabernacle, this, this portable temple that was going to be used to worship God, to draw near to God, to make sacrifices to God, to make atonement for sin, one of the things God tells Moses that the people are to do is they are to give offerings of all types of metal, including their gold, including their bronze, including their silver, and they're to use those offerings to help construct 
this house of worship for the Lord. But instead, they're down there at the base of the mountain, impatient, and they go to Aaron, who is supposed to be the first priest, the one who's actually supposed to mediate between God and his people on behalf of the people. And the Israelites go to Aaron and say, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Help us make a God. So this gold that was supposed to be used for for this house of worship, they give, and again, we know the story, right? They make a golden calf. And then they have this festival where they start dancing and worshiping and doing all sorts of heinous things, turning against the Lord and worshiping a golden calf. My kids and I like to read various children's storybook Bibles, and whenever we get to this, uh, this particular story in the Bibles, they're really good at emphasizing like the features of the golden calf, right? Here's this immovable object, right, that they have to like perch up there. It can't speak, it can't move, it can't do anything. And the people are like, here's your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And so I'll look at my kids and I was like, can that thing even talk? And they're like, no, that thing can't even talk. Can that thing even move? No, that can't even move. Can that thing do anything for them? No, it can't do anything for them. And yet here God's people are, have no other gods before me, and they're worshiping a golden calf. And it's tragic. Right? Moses hasn't even gotten down the mountain, and they can't even obey the first commandment. They have completely blasphemed against God. But then Moses is coming down the mountain, and he's holding the tablets in his hand with God's commandments on them, and he's going down to relay God's words to them. And what happens with Moses? He gets so angry at the people that he throws them down and smashes them. So now you've got, you've got the sins of the people. You've got Moses' sins. And we're in camp turn. In the midst of this, God actually tells Moses, you need to go down and confront these people because they've become stiff-necked. And God actually says he's not going to keep going with them. Well, that too raises a problem because the language of God's covenant with his people in Scripture is, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to dwell with you. But now we're faced with something here. Moses is going to these people where God said, they're they're stiff-necked, they're sinful, look at what they've done, and I'm not going. And Moses begins to intercede on behalf of his people with the Lord about what, he's basically pleading with the Lord, don't don't abandon us. If you don't go with us, what, what hope do we have? Please go with us. And the Lord ends up calling Moses back up on Mount Sinai Interestingly, one commentator notes that even as Moses is going back up Mount Sinai, he's going to pass those broken tablets. He's going to go up there and he's going to have this encounter with the Lord. Again, I know we know that story well, but all those details really matter. Because as Moses goes back up the mountain, God is going to reveal what kind of God he is actually And here they were worshiping this golden calf down there, but God says, let me actually reveal to you who the God of Israel is. And this is the passage we're looking at this morning, right? It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And notice here, the Lord is going to say what he does, but he says what he's like first. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So I just want to take a look at, at what God, how God reveals himself to them and just, just slow down and, and, and listen to the way he says who he is and what he's like. First, notice that he repeats his name. A commentator highlights that this is the only place in Scripture where God actually repeats this name twice. This was the name that God used when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush where he says, I am who I am, and others, I'm the living, everlasting God. It's the name Yahweh. It's a holy name. It was so holy that, that God's people for centuries wouldn't even utter the name. And here the Lord is saying, first and foremost, it's the Lord, the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's the everlasting God. It's the one who says, I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. He's merciful. What is mercy, right? Mercy does withholds what we actually deserve. So this God, Yahweh, is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Then he says he's gracious. He actually gives us what we don't deserve. And then he's slow to anger, right? We already have this contrasted in this story. Probably most of us in our lives here don't have to struggle what it looks like to be quick to anger. I certainly don't have to think too hard about what it means to be quick to anger. Moses was quick to anger. But here it says that the Lord is slow to anger. In fact, I think it's because he's merciful and gracious that he is slow to anger. And we see this throughout, all, all the way up to this point in Israel's story. We saw it with Adam and Eve. We saw it with Abraham and Sarah. We saw it with um, Esau and, and Jacob in that story. We see it with Judah. We see it with Joseph and his brothers. We see it with Moses, that God is slow to anger. And then it says he is abounding in steadfast love. He's abounding in steadfast love. The word for steadfast love, it's, it's a Hebrew word that we, we transliterate into hesed. We usually write it H-E-S-S-E-D. It's one of those words, it's, it's actually really hard to translate into English because of the richness of the word and because all that's actually encompassed into this word. I'll give you a couple definitions that's actually helpful to understand what does this steadfast love actually entail. This comes from Sally Lloyd-Jones in her Jesus Storybook Bible. She says that this is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And then here's Michael Kartz. Many of you know him as an artist. He's also a theologian. He's actually written a book on this word, has said. Michael Kartz says that this word is when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything, ultimately giving us himself. So this is God's covenantal, faithful love for his people, right? Again, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you. And in order for that to happen, God has to be merciful and gracious. He has to be slow to anger. He has to be abounding in steadfast love. I think about this. I really appreciate this passage. For the longest time when we would pray at night, especially with my son, we would confess sin and we would kind of close with this passage and over time, he was probably three, three and a half at this time. Whenever we got to the steadfast love part, he would emphasize the abounding. 
Uh, and so, you know, we'd say the Lord's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and he would say, and abounding in steadfast love. And I loved it, right, because he was getting it, right? He's abounding in steadfast love. And then it says that God forgives iniquity. Again, back to Michael Card, what does this mean? Essentially, God is taking the load of the wrongdoing, the load of the rebellion and the sin upon himself, which is involved whenever another person forgives. They're taking it on themselves. And then it says that God does not clear the guilty, right? He takes sin seriously. Even in this generation of people, there are some people who won't make it to the promised land in this group of people because their hearts were hardened to the Lord and they never turned back to him. And we're gonna come back to that at the end here too. It does say he does not clear the guilty. So, again, you take the context of what was going on at the base of the mountain. You take all the sin and the blasphemy that's happened and Moses is interceding and mediating on behalf of the people and says, please go with us. And the Lord brings them up and the, and the Lord reveals himself as this God. He discloses who he is. And this is what's interesting. From this point forward, this will be one of the primary verses that's quoted in Scripture to describe what God is like to his people. In the Old Testament, some iteration of this passage we're looking at in Exodus 34 is quoted 27 different times. It's quoted precisely at least two other times, almost word for word. We're going to look at one of those here in just a minute. And in fact, the most repeated refrain in all of Scripture is the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. He says it often. He says it because it's hard for us to believe it. But he says it because he wants it to sink deep into our hearts. So that's looking at what the scripture says about his love and the context that you see it happening in. This is a really sinful people. And God says, though, I am going to have this relationship with him. So I said I wanted to look at two ways that it's hard for us to believe that he really does love us. So when I ask that question to a crowd, I'm sure if I ask the questions here today, do you struggle to believe that? There are many hands that would go up here too. So the first thing I want to look at is, is, the, is the but what about with my sins. And the but what abouts, I get this from David Pallison, who was one of my professors and he writes this in, in one of his books. He's saying he's going to unpack this over the next, you know, 180 pages. He says, and as we go along, you're going to have your but what abouts, your BWAs, right? So you're going to raise these questions. And I'm going to say, but, but what about this? And but what about, yeah, I hear you, Wes, but what about this? And so this first one this morning is like, Wes, but what about my sins? And the first one here is, what about my former sins? Like, you don't know what kind of life that I used to live. You don't know what I did. You don't know what I was capable of, and I don't. But we're going to look at a passage in Nehemiah 9 that, again, is the same passage we just read, but it's interesting how that part actually expands on the passage there. So Nehemiah chapter 9, this is later on in Israel's story. So they've actually already entered the promised land. Then they've actually been driven out of the promised land because of their sin and rebellion many, 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 many years later. But then they've gone back, and they're supposed to rebuild Jerusalem. And the book of Nehemiah is about them rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And as they're dedicating this wall and rededicating the city, chapter 9 of Nehemiah is all about Israel confessing their sins from the beginning until now. That's what they're doing. And we get to, to verse 16 of chapter 9 in Nehemiah, and this is the passage that we're reading. 
But listen, listen for some of the, the slight differences from when we first saw it in Exodus 34, and now we see it now. So, so they've been confessing sins for the first 15 verses of, of Nehemiah 9, and now here they get to verse 16, and it says, but they, that's the Israelites, our ancestors, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. That's the story of the golden calf, right? They, they appoint Aaron and say, take us back and let this lifeless cow take us as well. So they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way. The, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth. And gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. So again, same passage, right? But you are God ready to forgive. You're abounding in steadfast love, even when, I love how Nehemiah captures that. Sometimes in counseling, once if someone's like really stuck in their guilt and their shame, we'll just like look at this passage together and say like it goes beyond our comprehension sometimes. But God says, even when. We are capable of such things, even when. Okay, Wes, but what about sins that I've committed recently, after I've been a Christian? Does God forgive that? Does he love me? I've had people before say to me, you know, Wes, I, I often feel like I'm just kind of one, one mistake away from him just like walking away from me in my relationship with him. Well, Psalm 51.1, this is a well-known psalm. This is David after he's been confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. And this is David's prayer of confession to the Lord. And that psalm begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your, same word, steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So here David, man after God's own heart, anointed king, the one who God has given this promise to, that someone from your line, David, is going to sit on this throne forever. We know that's ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's this man. He's, he's, he's called all these things. He follows the Lord, capable of great sin. And yet God, because of God's steadfast love, according to his abundant mercies, God forgives transgressions. Now, I am not endorsing sin, right? That's a question raised to Paul in the book of Romans. Well, should we just sin more so that we receive this all the more? No, may it never be. So I'm not endorsing that, but I'm certainly endorsing a God who abounds in steadfast love for his people. A God who for all who will come to him in trust, he pours this out. I mentioned the fact that, that this passage from Exodus is seen 27, uh, 27 times in the Old Testament, and almost every single time it's in the context of people returning to the Lord in trust. 
and in repentance. So in our family, you know, I think about what about sins that I've committed recently. In our family, we have a practice. When we've wronged somebody else in, in, in our home, we have to ask forgiveness of the other person, right? And sometimes it's, uh, my kids might actually be watching this right now, so they're going to hear me talking about this and potentially throwing them under the bus here. Uh, but, but one of the things that sometimes, you know, it's begrudging or they'll just say, well, I'm sorry. I was like, no, it's not. I'm sorry. You need to ask forgiveness. And, you know, they mumble it under their breath. They're like, no, we have to be able to hear you. Will, will you forgive me? Um, and will you forgive me for what? Uh, and, you know, we go through this. Sometimes it's a shorter process. Sometimes it's a lengthier process. But something my wife and I do when they, when they have that conversation with us is we tell our kids, we will always forgive you. And it's important for them to hear that from us. And we will always forgive them. And why? Because we love them and we want relationship with them. And if my wife and I, being sinful, imperfect parents, love our kids like that, how much more the God who abounds in steadfast love the God who is full of mercy and grace and slow anger and the God who forgives, how much more will he forgive? So that's, what about my sins, right? But then another great, but what about, is, but what about my suffering, Wes? And this one in some ways can be harder because if you suffer, if you're going through suffering right now, if you've gone through suffering for a long time, it is one of the existential crises in the Christian faith. If God is so good and if he loves me, why does this hurt so badly? If God loves me, why did he take that from me or that person from me? It's not an easy question to answer. Some, some people would say, I've prayed for years and he hasn't relieved this suffering. There's lots of psalms that we could look at that talk about this thing. There's lots of other passages of scripture we could look at as well. For today, I just thought Psalm 13. This is Psalm 13. It's six verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is David praying, by the way. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Whatever's going on in David's life, it's, it's unceasing. And God hasn't answered. And in God's silence, David actually feels like he's lost the Lord's favor. Does God actually love me? Does he care for me? How long do I have to keep praying? Interestingly, though, verse 3, David keeps praying to the Lord in his suffering. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. One commentator here mentions that David, in, in between verse 2 and 3, so all the ways that I feel like God's forsaken me, and yet I'm going to keep talking to you, he says that David employs terrible logic, but beautiful faith. Right? Because terrible logic. Like, why would I keep praying? Why? You have an answer. Why do I keep answering? And then I think here's the, here's the crux of the psalm and why I bring Psalm 13 in today in light of our suffering in verse 5, David says, it's often translated, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Again, same word. But instead of but, you could actually use and would be an appropriate translation. And I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. How does the same man who's, how long will you hide your face from me? How long will you forget me? 
also say, but I trusted in your steadfast love. One of the reasons we can pray that way is, one, because it's in Scripture. That's a psalm-like faith. That's what we're after. A psalm-like faith says, this is what I'm going through, God, and it really hurts. And everything about what I'm going through makes me feel like you don't love me. But this is what you've said is true of me, steadfast love. And because you've said that's true of me, I'm going to trust that that's true, even though everything that I'm going through feels like it's going to undermine that or is threatening to undermine that or makes it hard to believe that. We call that the language of lament. Maybe a word you're familiar with. And lament is this. Lament stands in the gap between the pain and the promise. Okay, you've promised this steadfast love. You've promised a day that I will be with you and I won't experience these things anymore. But this is what I'm going through right now. And so in the middle, I'm going to keep pouring out my heart to you and trust that that's true. It's one of the privileges we have to do with each other is to remind each other of his love for us in the midst of what we're going through. Our suffering is painful and real, and it does lead us to doubt. It's also one of the reasons, as we have the privilege to do that with one another, we want to be careful how we do that, because we don't just want to artificially slap a spiritual Band-Aid on it, as though the suffering, as though the, the steadfast love of God just all of a sudden makes the pain go away. It's both at the same time. This hurts, and yet he's promised to love me with a steadfast love. And then we have the, pr the privilege together of walking these things out with each other, to hold on to faith together and to encourage one another with what's true of the Lord. So my suffering, interestingly, steadfast love has said shows up at least 126 times in the Psalms. And at least half of those are in the context of suffering, intense suffering, threats from other people, threats from without, pain going on within. So he's promised his love for us, a steadfast love. We struggle to believe that, and yet that's what his word says. We doubt it because of our sins, former and present struggles. We doubt it because of the pain we're in. Sometimes we doubt it because we just say, I don't, I don't feel his love. And that's, that's an important consideration. Our feelings matter. They're real. You know, again, not helpful to say, like, you shouldn't feel that way, right? Well, I know I shouldn't, but I do, and so what do I do with that? Um, so our feelings, they, they say something that's true, but we want to constantly be saying, okay, but what else is true of me? What else is true? And my feelings don't determine Reality. Yesterday morning, I was walking into uh, my, my daughter uh, plays basketball, and I coach her team. We're walking, and it was really cold yesterday, if you remember. And I was saying, please put your jacket on. It's really cold. And I said, it's below freezing. And she says, no, it's not. And I looked at my watch, and it, you know, I said, it's, it's 32 degrees. So it was actually at freezing, to be technical. But she's like, well, I'm not cold, right? So she didn't feel cold, but it's like freezing. And then she says, well, freezing is 14. I said, it's not 14. It's 32. She goes, no, it's not. It's 14. It's okay. You know, I'm, I'm not going to try to have the argument there, but my point is, it doesn't matter what she felt in the moment. Like, that didn't change reality, right? 32 is freezing. Well, however you feel about it, 32 is freezing. And that's true of our feelings as well. My feelings don't determine what's true about the Lord. My feelings don't dictate his reality. 
doesn't mean they're insignificant. It doesn't mean they don't matter. But what he says is true. It's true. And we want to just grow in our trust and our belief in that. Just in closing here, just another minute or two, like, like how, how does this all happen? How does this all become ours through the Lord? Again, remember you go back to Exodus 34 and God says he doesn't, he doesn't leave sin unpunished. I will by no means clear the guilty, but I'm a forgiving God. So, so how, do we, how do we rest with that? How does this all work? Interesting, in Exodus 32 verse 30 this is after Moses is aware of what's happened to the people. Moses makes this, this comment. He says to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses is going to go back up. The, now, now, around this same time, God has actually said, this is what priests are going to be like. This is what priests are going to be wearing. That's when he was up there, and they were down there with the golden calf. God's given them instructions for the priesthood. And one of the last instructions that he tells them for the garbs that the priests would wear in the tabernacle, they were supposed to sprinkle blood on the priestly robes as they anointed the priest. And that's interesting. Because from that point forward, like, right, blood stains, right? So from that point forward, when you would look at the priestly robes, you would see the remnants of this blood that anointed them. And we know the story of the sacrificial system, that blood was necessary to atone for their sins. It's interesting that Moses makes that comment. And he is going to go up and he's going to mediate for the people, but Moses couldn't fully atone for their sins. No priest could fully atone for their sins. Moses was a type of mediator, but he was a shadow of the one to come. In 1 John chapter 2, I love the book of 1 John. One of the, one of the things that John's trying to do in that letter is to assure God's people that he really loves you and then to call us to respond out of that love and our love for one another. But in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, John writes this, My little children, even there, that's the language of family, right? My little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He, Jesus, is the propitiation, it's an atoning sacrifice, it's the one who actually died in our place, it's the one who absorbed the wrath of God, who dealt with our guilt in himself. He is the one who has done that, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's how this becomes ours. Sin is dealt with in Jesus. I didn't even know we were doing communion today. Andy's going to come up to, to, um, to institute the Lord's Supper here today and to lead us in that. But that's what we're celebrating. Jesus died to absorb our guilt and the wrath of God so that in him we experience the love of God. Right? Go back to Michael Card's definition. It's when the one from whom we should expect nothing gives us everything. And if you are in Christ this morning, I will close with this. If you are in Christ this morning, he loves you. He loves you. And if you've never trusted Christ this morning, my, my plea to you morning, to this morning is to consider what the Bible says about his love for all who will come to him and turn to him and put their trust in him. His relationship with you is mercy 
grace, and steadfast love. He really does love you with a love that cannot and will not let you go. Let me pray. Our Father, again, this just, it, it just, it goes beyond our comprehension. And in light of our stories and our struggles and life on this side of the new creation, we just struggle to experience this, to know this deep in our souls. And yet it's true of you. And it's true because that is what you are like. And because you've done it for us, you have sent your son to die for the sins of your people, that in him we would have newness of life and we would be brought into your family forever. Help us to trust in that more and more. Thank you that you are merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abound in steadfast love. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. And we do pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.